0: Hello, and welcome to the First Prez Mommy Podcast, the show for people on the go who like to stay in tune with the conversations at our church. Today, Pastor Clint Tolbert speaks about Colossians 3, 22-4, 1. We learn that letting the peace of Christ rule in your heart means to be accountable to Christ in your heart, for everything. Let's hear today's message. Richard Allen was born in 1760. He was born in Philadelphia, and he was born into slavery. As a child, he was sold to a plantation owner who lived and worked in Delaware. This plantation owner's name was Stokely Sturgis. Don't you love the names of some of the people back then? Mr. Sturgis was involved in a local Methodist church there in his community, and unlike a lot of plantations owner, plantation owners, he encouraged um, the slaves under his care to attend church with him. And so Richard Allen uh, grew up as a child uh, hearing about Jesus, worshiping in this church. In the midst of that, Richard Allen taught himself to read and write, and at age 17, gave his life to Jesus for the first time. And there was an immediate change. Richard Allen's spiritual maturity and fervor uh, was almost immediately evident. He began to preach to others there on the plantation and even to some of the other local Methodist churches. In one of his journals, Richard Allen reflects of his own sense of spirituality, sometimes I would awake from my sleep preaching and praying. I don't know if you've ever done that. I haven't. Sturgis was so impressed with Alan uh, that he allowed Alan to purchase his freedom, which he did. And uh, having this new sense of freedom, he began to preach all the more at uh, congregations all around the state of Delaware and even uh, surrounding states. He had such a reputation that some of the prominent Methodist leaders of the day, like Francis Asbury, do you know Francis Asbury? The one for whom Asbury College, where there was just this revival over the past year, that college is named for him. Francis Asbury took it upon himself to promote Richard Allen and to make sure that there were congregations open to his preaching. He thought so highly of the young man. In 1786, so Alan now being 26 years old, uh, he returned to the city of Philadelphia and joined St. George's Methodist Church. He wasn't their pastor, uh, but he certainly was a, uh, a large presence within that congregation and, and a lay leader, so much so that his leadership attracted within that first year Uh, dozens and dozens of African-American people to join St. George's Methodist Church so that with within that year 10 percent of the congregation was African-American. Now that church did not have any sort of official policy or history of segregated seating but there was there was an unwritten rule that uh, the black members of the congregation would sit on chairs along the outside walls while the pews were reserved for white members. You can imagine the racial tension that began to build within the congregation as Richard Allen and those who followed him made up more and more of the congregation. You can also imagine the confusion as people would come into the life of the church uncertain about these unwritten rules. I'll not share with any of you whose seat you're actually sitting in this morning, but we all sense that, right? Until this tension boiled over on one Sunday morning when some of the, the, the new black members into the congregation knelt down in front of some new newly purchased pews at a prayer service. And one of the white trustees came and physically grabbed the man and lifted him up, saying, you must get up, you must not kneel and pray here. We're going through the book of Colossians. It talks about the, the relationship we share together as the church. I want you to take your, allow yourself to feel what this must have been like in that moment. In a service like we're experiencing now, to have a trustee of the church say, no, 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 you can't do that. Imagine the pain, confusion, anger, frustration. Alan had been considering for the past year whether or not he should start his own independent congregation specifically for black people. And this moment was the straw that broke the camel's back. He and some of the other African-American leaders left and began what is now known as the African Methodist Episcopal, or AME, denomination. Have you heard of the AME denomination? Yeah. Still today, more than 7,000 congregations are part of the AME. And those 7,000 congregations serve 2.5 million members. As a frame of reference, that's about a million more than our own denomination. Warren A.M.E. Church is right up the street on Collingwood Boulevard. They are served by Reverend Otis Gordon, who is a friendly acquaintance of mine. I wish I could call him friend. The only reason I can't is because I haven't spent enough time with him. But I sure love the man as I've known him. He's preached here in our chapel during some of our shared worship services. Why am I telling you this story? Well, if you've read ahead in our journal, you know that we are moving into some verses addressed to masters and slaves. We are uh, continuing in the household code. Last week, in that code, we, we talked about, all right, husband and wife, parents and children, what does it mean for you to relate to one another within the church family? Now, masters and slaves are addressed. But if you've read this journal, you know that those who translated the ESV made a language change. Instead of slave, they have used the phrase bond servant. I'm assuming they made this choice out of a sensitivity to our nation's history with slavery. They would rightly understand that slavery, as it was practiced in the ancient Near East, in the ancient city of Colossae, was dramatically different than what we often picture in our mind's eye because of the history of slavery in this country and specifically in the pre war South. They are different. Even so, I think it's important that we're honest and recognize that the word translated, slave or bond servant, whichever you want to use, is the word doulas. And that word means a person who is legally owned by someone else and whose entire livelihood and purpose was determined by their master. Now, in a spiritual sense, that word is used in the scripture about all of us in our relationship with Jesus. We're called to be slaves to Christ and to recognize he is the one who directs our lives. But but let's be honest that that it's problematic, whatever English translation you want to use, it's problematic for one person to own another. To own another person or to consider someone anything less than one who is created in the image of God contradicts a right biblical understanding of humanity. Even so, you know, the church over the centuries has struggled with recognizing this and then living it out. There have been some moved by the, the, the biblical teaching of the gospel who have spent their life trying to eradicate slavery. William Wilberforce would be one. Do you know Wilberforce? Who in England spent his life to rid the world of this institution. And yet, at the very same time that Wilberforce lived, there were others who, based on the same gospel, championed slavery as a divinely ordered, ordained institution. This is why our theological tradition, as a Presbyterian church, calls us, you might have heard this phrase, calls us to be reformed and always reforming according to the Word of God. Heard that phrase before? Reformed and always reforming according to the Word of God. What does that mean? Well, it means we always allow the Scripture to speak into our lives. The Scripture is true, and the Scripture is our authority, and we should never question that. But we should always question whether we have rightly understood the Scripture and whether we have rightly applied it in our lives so it is, we come to our text this morning and go, all right, so what does this mean for us? Thankfully, we are not actively in this congregation or community uh, wrestling with slavery as such. It still exists in much of the world, as you know. And so I don't want to take the rest of this time to speak to history I did print uh, a biography of Richard Allen along with an article, a brief article, but I think it's a good one, uh, meant to help us understand, all right, so what are we supposed to do with the Bible and the topic of slavery? Both of those are on the information table if you'd like to take those with you this morning. But I want to spend the rest of this time allowing God's word to speak not into our past but into our present Because I think the directives offered to masters and slaves or masters and bondservants speak to our life as we labor within the world. It calls us to consider the motivation for the way that we work and serve and live uh, regardless of whatever station we might hold. And so I'd invite you to open the Scripture uh, allow me to read it to you, we'll pray, and then we'll consider that. What is God's word saying to me uh, in the life that I'm living today? Colossians chapter three verses 22 through chapter four: one. I do not know why they broke the chapter where <laughs> they did uh, Hear God's word. Bond servants. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pause and pray. Oh, Lord God, we hear your word read. And now we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would impress your word on our heart, our mind, our soul. We don't want this to simply remain a history lesson. But instead, Lord, we want to hear your voice calling us to serve you in the common practices of our life here and now. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Well, thank goodness the kind of the social dynamic or construct of slavery, master and slave, is not something we have to actively engage right now. But let's not be so naive as to think there aren't other social constructs or, or relational dynamics that, that are true in the world that also come into the church and affect the way we relate to one another. Think about it. Just as in the church back then, you had in one church, masters and slaves, so too do we have these, these challenging uh, relational dynamics. Some in our congregation uh, have, given, or have been called into places where they uh, are the employer. They're the manager. You're the boss. I'll not ask for a raise of hands in here, but some of you know what it is to be the boss. Others of you are here, and you have not been the boss before. You You are usually the employee. You're the laborer. You're the worker. And some of you have even been those things in the same place. That is to say, you were boss and laborer in the same business, and then you come here into the life of the church. What does that mean for your relationship here? there there's a certain order of the way you relate to one another right here you are brothers in christ or brothers and sisters in christ how how does that change things in our congregation we have lots of students we also have teachers some teachers have these very kids in their classes how does the relationship that they have in the world affect the relationship we share together here As the church, some of you are small business owners, others of you union members, you might see the world a little differently as such, and yet you come here as members of one church. As we've talked about all summer long, the the letter to the Colossians addresses our life together as the church. For it's when Christ is lifted up in our midst and we relate to one another in a Christ-honoring way, that is our hope of glory. But that sounds good. It's tough, right? It's not just the vocational dynamics that I outline. There's also kind of some social dynamics. We come from different social classes. Can I say that anymore? A lot of people pretend we don't have social classes. Come on. Come on, right? Some of us have significant means. Some of us don't. What does it mean for us to relate to one another? Most of you know my mom has Alzheimer's disease. She's now in the uh, memory care unit at Swan Creek. I'm really, really grateful that she and my father had the foresight and the means to buy long-term care insurance. So with all of the challenges we're facing right now, one challenge we don't face is financial. I think it costs nearly $15,000 a month for her care. We don't have to pay a penny. And yet I come alongside some of you in similar situations and as your pastor, hear the challenges you're facing. What does it mean for us to be as a church family, some of us having more means than others? That's tough, isn't it? What does it mean for us to engage one another as a church family? Because our social classes kind of set a different sense of uh, social expectation in front of one another. What is the appropriate attire to wear to church? Ooh, now I'm picking on some people, right? Some of you still would prefer that I dress differently. But our social class, our generations, all of that place expectations on how we will come together. How do we navigate that? I don't think it's true too much anymore. But in the church I grew up in, and this church as well, I think, probably a few decades ago, if you were a CEO of a company, if you were someone with standing out there, you probably got the first look to come and be an elder on the board here. Is that right? Just because you run things out there, should you run things in here? Is that our standard? Many of you know when I uh, first entered into ministry, this was before seminary, before being a pastor, I did collegiate ministry at Purdue University. Stacy and I had to raise our own financial support. So right out of college, I had to raise about $50,000 a year to be able to support ourselves. I began to make phone calls and go see people. One man uh, in the church I grew up in was known to have great wealth. He was known to be one of the kind of the mover and shaker type of people. So I asked if I could come and see him about this ministry. He was gracious and allowed me to come. Sat in his living room for about two hours, had a great conversation. He told me about all of his successes. And you could see it all around as well. Until finally he called out to his wife and said, Honey, get the checkbook. We're going to take care of this young man. And he wrote me a $100 check. I'm grateful for anything we received, but when you're trying to raise $50,000 a year, a $100 check doesn't take you very far. At the same time in that congregation, there was a man who was a driver's ed instructor. Didn't even come up on my radar as someone I should reach out to to share about this ministry we were entering into But he heard about it anyways, and so he called me Said I'd like you to come tell me what you're doing so I did He Said I, I believe in what you're doing. I'd like to support you with $250 a month Same church How do we manage the complexities of all of the relational dynamics out there in ordering our life together in here. I don't know. (laughs) But I lift this up in the hopes that we all might humbly recognize the challenge. That yes, the world calls us into these ordered hierarchies. That's the nature of the beast. But here, we are brother and sister in Christ, called together as one. That's the challenge here in Colossae. Remember, this is a church made up of masters and slaves. If ever there wasn't a clue that this is different than what we know in the American South, that should be it, right? That both people are welcomed into this community. And yet, there's the challenge. One of the young men in this community was a, was a young man named Onesimus. He was a slave. Before coming to faith, he ran away from his master, a man named Philemon. He ran away and encountered the Apostle Paul. Through the Apostle Paul's ministry, Onesimus came to faith and was mentored and discipled in the way of Christ. Now, we don't know much about Onesimus, but let me ask you to imagine with me. If you were somebody who learned from the Apostle Paul yourself, Do you think you're somebody of probably some spiritual maturity and depth? I think it's possible. I think it's probably likely, right? That Anesimus, having been mentored and discipled by the Apostle Paul, all of a sudden becomes a person of great spiritual maturity and fervor, not unlike Richard Allen. And then Paul says to him, hey, Anesimus, here's the thing. If you're going to follow Jesus, you've got to act with honesty integrity, courage and faith you need to go back to the master you ran away from and you need to face him and so Enesimus and Epaphras and all the others we named at the beginning of the summer go back with these two letters one to the whole church in Colossae and the other to the master Master Philemon next week we're going to read the letter to Philemon together but both letters brought together. Onesimus, likely, this runaway slave, likely now one of the spiritual giants in the congregation, surpassing his master Philemon. What does that mean for their relationship together? Again, we live in a world that has all sorts of structural hierarchies, right? The owner's up here, he's got some managers, and some sub-managers, and down here it's... The organizational structure in the world is often pretty steep. But do you notice in the scripture, the organizational structure in Jesus' organization? It's flat. <laughs> There's Jesus and the rest of us. Do you notice that? Look at these verses, verse 22 and 23. Hey, bondservants, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not just when they're looking at you as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, giving reverence, awe, respect to the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men. He's calling us, All of us to recognize, look, the the labor we exercise in the world, the the people we serve, we're not actually serving any human being. We're serving God himself. And we ought to recognize that when we do. So what does that look like? What does it look like, practically speaking, to serve Jesus? Jesus. Paul wrestled with this in his own life and wrote about it in 1 Corinthians, and so I'd like to put it in front of you and wrestle with it together. Now, in your journal, I'm going to have the words up on the screen so you don't have to turn here, uh, but in your journal, if you'd like to write 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 17, I think it would be a helpful passage for you to reflect on as you, as you consider this call to masters and slaves. But let's look at this, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 17. The Apostle Paul says this, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul begins, it's a little wordy here, but basically he says, let's, let's recognize something. In this work we're called to together, there is only one foundation, and that is Jesus Christ himself. It's the gospel. When in Colossians you hear words like, hey, when you work, work unto the Lord, or when you work, do so recognizing that God is watching you, can you do a little reflection What's the picture of God in your mind as you hear that? As you're working in the world, what's your picture of God who is watching and evaluating your work? If I'm going to be honest, my picture of God, at least at first, is this God who is like looking, watching, watching as soon as I get out of line. Anybody else like that? Is that the gospel? That's not the Gospel, is it? That God is watching us, but He's watching us in the person of Jesus Christ. The one who has given His life for us. The one who has already paid for every misstep and every sin, every error, all of that. The one who is saying, no, 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 come follow me. As we recognize the foundation that is laid, maybe first notice that God is the one who is is watching, but watching with encouragement watching, seeking to guide, watching in a a spirit of grace and forgiveness that we might not only serve him, but enjoy all that he has put before us. Paul continues on, so let's go. Verse 12, he says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, that is to say, shown for what it is. For the day will disclose it, The day, that capital D, that's judgment day, like the day, right? Because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. All right, so leave this up here, Ian. Let's note this is a metaphor, obviously, right? Jesus is the foundation. All of us who claim to follow him have been called to get to work and build on that foundation. And at the end of our life, what we have built will be evaluated. That is, sent through the fire. Right? Some of it will be burned up as worthless, wood, hay, and straw, but others of it will come through refined like gold or silver or precious stones. Well, which is which? How do we know how we'll be evaluated? Well, if you look at the context of this passage, the answer is obvious and it's one. If we seek to serve Jesus in whatever we do, If we work for him if our desire is that his name be promoted well then that work will be honored on judgment day but if we work and labor and serve only for our own name our own sake it'll be burned up you'll see if you read this the question is What do you do when the church starts arguing some people going hey i'm a fan of paul and others saying i'm a fan of apollos and paul goes are you kidding me it's not about paul or apollos it's about jesus and so when we work we work for jesus we don't work for clint we don't work for our boss we don't work for our denomination we don't work for our corporation we work for jesus And notice the promise. At the end, if we will have worked for Jesus, we will be rewarded for that. I don't know what that reward is, but I believe it's real. There will be some acknowledgement, well done, good and faithful servant. Do you notice also the warning, though? That some, because of the grace of Jesus Christ, will be saved but they'll enter the gates of heaven as if escaping the fire with nothing else. Because you will have spent your life for nothing. That's the warning, right? Let me show you the last part of this verse. Remembering that Colossians speaks to our life together, we hear now the warning that comes in verse 18. Ian, you got that? Or 16, there you go. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Remember Landon preaching that you is you all. And this is the warning. Hey, be careful. Because the way we relate to one another, often ordered by the way we've been taught to relate to one another out there, has consequences in here. I shudder to meet the man who grabbed Richard Allen's friend and said, you can't pray here. I think he's got some things to answer for. I pray he knows Jesus is Lord because Jesus will have paid the price for that. But if not, we've got to take our life together seriously. Jesus, we are warned in Colossians, has no impartiality in his judgment. You notice verse 25. Directed at the bondservants or the slaves, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. There's a warning there. God is watching and judging what we do. But lest you think that should only be a warning for the slaves or the servants, if you look at the household code in Ephesians, it's really interesting. Notice this, Ephesians 6:9, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. We are all on a level. And we answer to Jesus. And so let me ask you to pause in your own just heart and mind. Ask yourself, when you wake up in the morning, who is it that you look to to order your day? As you think about what you have to do. Many of you are going, well, I'm, re- I'm retired now, so I don't know what, how this applies to me <laughs> There's no retirement in God's economy. I'm sorry. You may not be getting a paycheck from a corporation, but you are still serving Christ. So when you wake up in the morning, who do you you look to to direct your steps? And, And when you lay your head on the pillow at night and review the day that has gone by, Whose name is in your mind that causes you to lay awake because, oh no, maybe I upset them. Oh no, maybe I didn't. Oh no. I can tell you, I can list a lot of names, but for me, it's not often Jesus, and it should be. For we answer only to him. We're almost done, but I just, I just want to point out this last probably obvious thing that the way we work and serve and live reveals the one who truly rules over us and as such provides a testimony to the world about who we belong to and and who we worship. Right? So, So in verse 22, when we are called to work, not just when the boss is watching, but at all times because we know that God sees, we need to own that. Remember, as a high school student, much like our high school students have done for some of you, I was employed to pull weeds in uh, one of the church ladies' gardens. Now, I had been taught how to pull weeds. You pull them, like, from the root. But sometimes that's hard. And I learned really quick, hey, I could snap that weed off right at the ground, cover it with a little bit of mulch. She'll never know. I don't know why it stuck with me, but I did that. It's probably the only time I worked with that attitude, but it still bugs me. Because I know. I know what's right. I know who my life points to. And I know God sees that. The way we work witnesses to who we belong to and for those of us who are charged with the care of others, the way we relate to and serve them Reveals who, is, who we believe is ultimately in control. That's me now too, right? There are a few entrusted to my leadership and care and I always have to think, how is the way I'm leading? How does it reflect who's really in charge? All of this, all of this is practical thought. Uh, about the principle from Colossians 3.16. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Friends, if we will serve Jesus, if we will relate to Jesus in community together, if his priorities are our priorities, we'll be able to sleep at night. We'll be at peace with him and with one another. And he'll be glorified let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is tough. Again, we hear the words, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, and we think we know what that means, and we want it, and it sounds beautiful, but then when we begin to, to really lay out the challenges of living as your body, your church, in community together, as we think about all these dynamics and struggles, and what it means to live for you, Lord, it's tough. We give thanks that you deal with us not on the basis of judgment, but of grace. And we ask that you would lead us to embody your gracious presence here in our midst more and more as we follow you. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed our First Pres Mommy podcast. Learn more about our church at our website, firstpresmommy.org. Have a great week.